I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, I hope you are having a wonderful day. And uh, this week, we are very pleased to bring you a conversation that we've been waiting to have for uh, quite a while. Uh, this is Dr. Ingrid Waldron. Um, Dr. Waldron is a Canadian social scientist. Um, she is also the associate professor in the School of Nursing here in Dalhousie University in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia here. Um, but more importantly, she is the author of a book called There's Something in the Water, Environmental Racism in Indigenous and Black Communities, um, which was also optioned as a feature-length documentary uh, that was hosted and uh, uh, produced by Ellen Page, Halifax native. Um, and the the documentary is on Netflix right now. I highly suggest checking the doc out. Um, it's, man, it is incredibly eye-opening. And um, the work that Dr. Waldron is up to is is really important. Um, it's a little bit different this week. We're, we're not talking about illness per se, but we're more so talking about... Um, uh, like social illness and and how that affects um, communities who are uh, more marginalized and it, for for the three of us uh, this was a really really wonderful conversation we we feel um, we feel so grateful um, to to have a platform where we can have important conversations like we had with with Dr. Waldron. So I hope you enjoy this this week's episode. And again, please, please go to Netflix, check out the documentary. There's something in the water. It is um, it is absolutely uh, uh, just a stellar documentary and and a lot of shot of it here in Nova Scotia. So um, uh, go check it out. We love each and every one of you. I hope you're all hunkered down, staying safe. Uh, like I always say, don't touch your eyeballs, uh, hug your pets, and um, stay safe. All right. Love y'all. Enjoy. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Dr. Ingrid Waldron, a Canadian social scientist and the author of There's Something in the Water, Environmental Racism in Indigenous and Black Communities. Let's talk about it. Um, Dr. Ingrid Waldron, hello. How are you doing today? I'm great, uh, considering. Thank you. How are you? Uh, yeah, I would say the exact same. Great, considering. Everything uh, comes with a grain of salt these days. Dr. Waldron, I know that you're a professor at uh, Dalhousie um, and uh, in, the, in the School of Nursing, right? Yes. Uh, uh, you actually were a professor for my girlfriend, I believe. Um, yeah, I told her that we were doing an interview with you this morning she was like, Oh, she was my professor. Um, uh, what, uh, what is, what is, you know what, Brian, here's your, here's your segue, Brian. I was waiting for it. What is your day to day now that, uh, we're in this weird time? Um, uh, especially, you know, a professor, somebody who works in the field of, of, um, 
of educating healthcare. Are you still are you still able to do what you normally do, or uh, what what is your day to day? Yeah, it was a smooth transition. They had all our courses uh, transfer online. Uh, I'm using this uh, platform called Collaborate Ultra, which I was using for one of my two courses, but then I put both courses online. So one student was actually uh, uh, being taught by distance. Uh, so I already had it set up, and then I put all the other students after the corona hit. So I already had that platform set up, which was great. I was using it already. So it actually went really smoothly. My last class was la- was yesterday, and... Um, I mean, it's not ideal. I, I prefer to teach in person. Um, of course. And I, I find it went really smoothly. In fact, there are some aspects of it I really liked. I like the idea of doing it from home. <laughs> and uh, I just realized during this outbreak that the amount of time that I spend traveling, um, mm. it takes up a lot of time. And I found that I have been able to get a lot of work done, actually, since the coronavirus hit. I've been much more... Uh, industrious, I think, mm. because I'm I, traveling. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the, I feel like the the I feel like you're not alone there. Like I feel like there's a lot of people in the world who are slowly starting to realize how um, how like effective they can be by by cutting out a lot of the things that they would do in their normal day to day, and like and especially with the, this idea of like working from home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to see how this all plays out once it's once it's all over but speaking of speaking of um what you do for work um uh what what i I said that you were you were um a professor at the school of nursing Mm -hmm. um what is it that you teach in the school of nursing at at dalhousie i'm not a nurse actually so there are a few of us but three of us maybe out of the 36 professors who are not nurses um okay I'm i'm a sociologist by training, so I focus on the sociology of health and illness. Uh, so some of the inequalities that you're probably hearing about in the United States, why certain groups mm-hmm. have health disparities, and what are the structural issues, the political, the social, economic issues that impact health and create health disparities. So I guess you know I was hired because I bring that social determinants of health approach, which we're talking about a lot in public health these days. Mm-hmm. I bring that sociological, I guess, political perspective. And then my focus on marginalized communities like indigenous communities, black communities, immigrant communities. I have a particular place in the School of Nursing. So while I don't teach the clinical courses, I don't have that background because I'm not, I'm not a, a nurse. I bring a much more, I guess, sociological, you know, sociological perspective to health. And from that, from that, um, are you... For a school of nursing, obviously, you know, Dalhousie is a big school and people are coming from all over. Are you focusing on are you focusing on on the sociology of medicine and the inequalities in healthcare and all and everything there within the context of Canada um, or 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 on a more of a global level or a more of a localized level? What does that what does that look like? And what are what are some of those inequalities that that we see in healthcare and uh, around the country? There's a focus on. Yeah, Nova Scotia a bit, but more broadly on Canada, and to a certain extent globally, but because I'm teaching nurses and nursing, sorry, nursing students, nursing students tend to stay in Nova Scotia. Okay. Um, And then if they can't find work, they will go elsewhere. So because they tend to stay in Nova Scotia, I try to prepare them and equip equip them with knowledge that would be useful here. Um, That doesn't mean that, you know, we don't discuss global health issues, but I would say it's very much focused on Canada 
and Nova Scotia. And because we don't have a lot of literature on these issues in Canada, at times I have to go abroad. I have to I have to pull in literature from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, that will speak to that will speak to so like uh, you know maybe a uh, maybe a paralleled example of what of 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 things that you might want to talk about here, but there's just no. Do you, is that what you mean that there's no literature to speak about the things that 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 are happening here? So you look at for parallel examples elsewhere. Yeah, there are things happening here, but a lot of it, not all of it, but some of it is anecdotal. Okay. Um, there's information that's qualitative information based on interviews, but because Canada does not collect. Uh, disaggregated data based on race or ethnicity. Um, sometimes I have to pull on the literature from the United States. It doesn't mean that those issues are not happening here, but we don't have the disaggregated statistical survey data here because the government doesn't collect that data, which is problematic. Now with the coronavirus, people are calling on the government much in a much more urgent way uh, to do that here. And that's why in the United States, when you look at uh, media like CNN, they can say, 25% of African Nova Scotians, blah, blah, blah. We can't do that here. That right. doesn't mean that there isn't qualitative data. I'm a qualitative researcher. I focus on interviews and speaking with people. And I do some mixed methods work. But um, the reason we're pulling in data is because it's rooted in a lot of different things. You have less professors of color in the university. And people who tend to do that type of work are professors of color. So if we don't have enough professors of color in universities in Canada doing the kind of work that I'm doing, then of course you're not going to have the same extent um, as the United States, the same amount of data on those specific issues as in the U.S. So right. that's one of the barriers. Dr. Waldron, can you, can you um, speak to some of, give us some of, uh, examples of what the primary inequities you see in the system here locally are? Um, I can talk about it from several perspectives. I can talk about it in terms of uh, access to healthcare and to healthcare uh, disparities. Uh, so when we talk about healthcare disparities, we're talking about the fact that, for example, Indigenous and uh, Black communities in Nova Scotia and Canada um, have in many ways poor outcomes on certain health issues than other communities. Uh, so we know that uh, Black communities have high rates of, for example, cardiovascular disease, and uh, diabetes, and to some extent, certain cancers like prostate cancer uh, tends to be higher for black men uh, in the United States and anecdotally in Canada. Hmm. Um, And of course, uh, respiratory illness, uh, reproductive health issues, particularly for indigenous women, some of them resulting from toxic burdens due to environmental racism. So health disparities, we, we believe, are higher in certain communities, and those health disparities are not genetically determined. People would say, oh, they're born with it. It's something that they're born with. It's genetic. It's biological. What we know from studies in the United States and to some extent in Canada, they're outcomes of structural inequities, right? So in order to talk about uh, health disparities in any kind of productive way, you have to look at structural inequities within our other structures like education, like mm-hmm. our history of colonialism, the legacy of colonialism in Canada, uh, like our political systems, like labor, like income, poverty, and education. And that's what the social determinants of health is, or what I call the structural determinants of health, mm. is that our health outcomes are a product of mm-hmm. structural inequities within our social structures like housing and education and labor. Is there is there any data to um, determine which 
which one of those uh, pillars of those structural inequities kind of has the greatest impact on negative health outcomes? We don't have uh, data on that because once again, we don't have that uh, statistical data, but I would say for, it's hard to even actually say which is worse because they all intersect in terms of worsening health outcomes in those communities. But I would certainly say that poverty and um, income insecurity and unemployment and underemployment, which is of course connected to poverty and income insecurity, are the mm. um, major factors in health outcomes in Black communities, Indigenous communities, and immigrant communities. So I'd put those at the forefront, poverty, income insecurity, and unemployment and underemployment. You, um, you, it, before Brian asked that last question, I, I had this this question formulated in my head, and you 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 kind of pivoted right into it, and and so I, I'll kind of pivot the question. You spoke to the, you spoke to um, the question of you know well what's is it genetic or is it socially de- socially determined or structurally determined as you put it? Um, that I can only imagine that that must be extremely challenging to. Uh, to quantify without the statistical, without the statistical um, like analysis to back it up, like how big of a challenge do you face in that regard? As to, in going, in saying that something is um, like structurally or socially determined rather than rather than genetic. How do you how do you go about that advocacy without the statistical uh, backup? Even though we don't collect statistics uh, quantitative on that issue in Canada, we can easily pull in the literature on on stress that has been done in the United States and also in Canada. So we know that stress is the main determinant of all of our major health outcomes. Cancer is a product of stress. We used to think that cancer was mostly about genetics, that if your mother had cancer, you're more likely to have cancer. Now we have this whole field called epigenetics, right? Which you've probably heard about, which is about the fact that, um, you know, it's about your cell membrane, essentially. And if there are changes, negative changes or negative environmental exposures to that cell membrane, then it changes in a negative way. So the whole field of epigenetics tells us that stress and other negative factors have an impact on our body. We know that racism, for example, is a stressor, right? Um, We know that poverty is a stressor. We know that stress raises our cortisol level. And we know that a raised cortisol level or elevated cortisol level predisposes us to many or most of our chronic diseases like cancer, like diabetes, et cetera. So even though we're not pulling, we don't have uh, statistical data in Canada, we know that uh, chronic stress uh, predisposes us to illness. So by bringing in that data, there are people in Canada who are doing that work on stress and cortisol levels, and that's just a fact, right? And of course, worldwide. So if racism, and people have actually... um, confirm that if racism is a is a stressor, which it is, um, then we know we can pull in these issues to look at how they intersect in order to impact health. There are studies in the United States that actually talk about the fact that um, Black people are less likely to go into REM sleep. Whoa. They're more likely to, or they're less likely to go into REM sleep meaning that they're, 
their, their, their sleep tends to be superficial, if that's the right word, mm-hmm. because they're always on alert in a way, uh, because they're li- they live their lives on alert because of predisposed, you know, um, uh, stereotypes or, or attitudes about black people. That they're Whoa. Alert, and that then transfers to the way in which they sleep. I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. That is super fascinating. Yeah, so that, well, that's a study that was done, was it by um, Dr. Williams at Yale University, African-American professor who's a sociology um, of health professor. And that, that work has been done. So it's no different. I mean, you can transfer it to the Canadian context unless you believe that racism doesn't exist in Canada. We know that there's a particular way in which stress and racism impacts the body, and there's nothing suggesting that it's not going to do the same in Canadian communities. And how do you how do you define um, stress, or how is it defined in in some of these studies? Um, the reason why I ask the question is because you know there there are like many different types of stress that can be applied to the body, um, like an athlete, for example that is going under a high training load experiences high levels of stress on their body. But I imagine it's very different than the type of stress that you might experience if you're facing um, racism or uh, an overburden of work um, that you're you're trying to get done where, where you might be like facing levels of burnout. Is there like a healthy level of stress? And I'm not saying that you can have a healthy amount of racism in asking that question because I that's not true at all. But is there like levels of stress in the in the body that are healthy levels? Is there a point where it becomes too much? That's a hard question to ask. Or is there? I guess I guess to ask. Yeah, maybe because I'm not a medical doctor, but I would say that um, there are different types of stress, but stress has an impact on the body because it's both psychological. Because it starts with this, it starts emotionally and psychologically, and then impacts the body. So when we think of stress, we have to understand it in terms of its connection to your emotional and psychological state, and to your physical state. Um, whether or not there's a healthy amount of stress, I would assume that there is for somebody who's an athlete that needs to have a certain amount of stress in order to perform well. Um, but when we think of racism as stress which we do as a psychosocial stressor that impacts the body we know that that definitely has negative impacts Mm. on racialized people because it results in many of the health disparities that i talked about earlier people are now starting to recognize that to um to give a little bit of background to why i asked the question um i do in in another company that i work for we do stress assessments um for organizational stress and we look at the capacity and productivity of organizations um, and the correlation of stress within those organizations. So can, are they more productive if there's more stress or not? And there's been a lot of studies done around this, but it seems like there's a healthy level of stress where people identify as being like somewhere around 60 to 70 percent stressed out. But if it goes above that level, then that's where we start to see burnout and long-term mental health effects. And probably, and, and I would guess, Brian, underperformance when when there's probably a, a, a not enough. Well, usually it's underperformance, but it's because there's a lack of meaning. If there's not enough stress, right. then there's usually lack of meaning and lack of, and and because there's lack of meaning, there's boredom. So people aren't engaged with the work that they're doing. Right. So there is yeah, like think, this healthy I, level, but... 
I think we're talking about a completely different type of stress, though, Brian. To yeah. be honest with you, like, like, like economic, um, like economic stability, it. like, and that as a stressor versus like you know what your boss is expecting you to to perform. produce on a, a yeah perform like like there's 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 like the stresses that are that are that I I'm sure are like inherently valuable, and then there's the stress that is just like. That no is, one needs this. No, yeah, exactly. It's the stress that like that that equates to like survival, and, right, and is, that kind of stress which, is which just is, not. My question is kind of like my question was like, does it show up different in the body? Like, is the word that we're using stress? Is the word that we're using? Does it mean something different when it's manifesting in the mm-hmm. body in some type of chemical reaction? Right. Um, I I do. No, sorry. Go ahead. If you if you had something to add to that, please please do. Yeah, I think um, what you're talking about is the stress with respect to performance. So many people would say that you know they're nervous speaking in front of an audience, right? And you have that stress that you build up as soon as you walk onto that stage. But it's kind of healthy stress because it helps you to do better in a way. So you're talking about performance. Um, there's different types of stress, of course, and I'm talking about the stress of racism as a psychosocial stressor. And it could never be a healthy amount. Yeah, yeah. No, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, speak speaking of racism there was there was something that you said earlier um which i'm sure some people listening have have never heard this term before environmental racism um and and i know we'll we'll likely get to to uh your book and and of course the the um uh the feature length documentary um there's something in the water um but before we we start to touch on that what what is environmental racism? What, what does that term mean? Uh, environmental racism can be defined as the disproportionate uh, location or, or siting of polluting industries and other environmental hazards in primarily indigenous communities, black communities and communities of color. Uh, it was a term that was coined in the mid-1980s uh, in the United States. And it's just a term that refers to the fact that environmental policies that are created by government um, tend to target uh, communities that are both racialized and poor and communities that are also in what we could call out of the way places, whether it's reserves or rural communities like in Nova Scotia, where we have a lot of rural communities and a lot of rural black communities, um, they tend to target those communities for the siting of polluting industries and other environmental hazards. So it's it's this notion of uh, the intersection of race and power and uh, rurality in many cases and income because the communities that sit at that intersection of living in rural areas, of being racialized, of being low income, are those communities that we know tend to have less power. And when I talk about less power, I'm talking about less economic power, less economic clout, less political power. And those communities are the ones that tend to be forgotten, right, by politicians because they don't really need to uh, um, remember those communities when time comes to vote oftentimes because those are sometimes (laughs) communities that don't vote because they Mm. recognize that it doesn't seem to make a difference, I guess, over the years, so they're less likely to vote. But in many ways, those intersections of race and, and class and income Um, lead to their invisibilization by government. Um, And that means that there's often inaction in terms of addressing their issues, similar to what we see in Boat Harbor, but the Boat Harbor issue um, in Pictou Landing First Nation, where they have been 
trying to get the government to address their concerns since the mid-1980s. And as you know, only late last year, the week of Christmas, uh, the mill was closed after, Mm -hmm. what, since 1985, I guess, around there, the community started to um, request that the government do something. So these are communities that, in addition to being first selected for the siting of these industries, they're least likely uh, to have action taken by the government to address those concerns. Hmm. And I, and so, so like w- something that you, that you hear all over Canada all the time is the issue of pipelines being built. And I mean, that's a, that's like something that's, you know, always, always in the news and people protesting and, um, and what the government, how the government thinks about a pipeline being built and what the companies think and what the people think and, and the land that it runs through. And, um, so w- when you're talking about, you know, these, uh, these communities where all these factors intersect with each other. And then that, and, and through, through years of probably a self, a a, a self-enforcing cycle that, that perpetuates itself over time, um, leads to this lack of, of political power, economic power. And then, and now you have, and now you have a company that comes along and they build a pipeline and that pipeline wants to run right through that community. And, and, you know, from where I'm sitting, I go, why doesn't the company just build right around it? And it, and from your perspective of being, having expertise in this is the reason because a costs more money and that that company combined with maybe the, the, the political powers that be think because it runs through this community, we can just get it done and save the money. We can push right through this community, and because they have, they don't have the political capital or the economic capital. Hmm. We can, you know, we'll face the protesters and everything, and that that will all happen. But at the end of the day, we'll get this done, and we won't have to divert our pipeline, you know, twenty five or thirty or fifty kilometers, you know, that way, and then around to the back and everything like that. Is that is that what is that? I mean, that's a I mean, that's a base a very simplified version I'm I'm sure of what happens but is that in a nutshell like what's going on I certainly think it's complex but I think the main issue would be that those are the communities that they recognize are less able to fight back because some of the things mm. that I talked about if you put um, a pipeline in for example an elite white community I'm not talking about a poor white community because we have we have environmental injustices in a place like Harriet's Field, which is a low-income white community that's mm-hmm. rural, right? And they're having issues, and they've had issues since the 1980s. Yeah, I bike through Harriet's Field all the time. White community, boy, we're going to hear something about it, right? Because those mm-hmm. are people who get to have their voices heard, but also who have political clout and who are seen in many ways. So I think the decision by government to put pipelines, for example, primarily in indigenous communities is about the fact that it's much easier to do so because they're doing that in communities that in many ways are destabilized. Um, The fabric of those communities is often weakened by the multiple other social ills that an indigenous community, for example, is dealing with beyond environmental injustices. So uh, an indigenous community in any part of Canada is already dealing with income insecurity and poverty and housing insecurity and missing and murdered indigenous women and food insecurity and violence and suicide and mental illness. And that's a community that's dealing with multiple social ills that then 
consequently weaken the fabric of that community. I'm not saying that those communities are not strong communities. I don't want anybody to get on me and say that I'm saying that they're not strong communities, but the fabric of those communities are weakened. It's much easier to come into a community that's dealing with all these other social ills and put a pipeline in there because of that. And also knowing that those communities have less avenues to fight back mm. against the siding of those communities. So for me, it's it's kind of um, a no-brainer for government to do that. Um, and perhaps, I, and perhaps also to offer um, to make short-term promises that um, are ultimately outweighed by the long-term negative impact, environmental impact of having something like a like a pipeline run through. Yeah, and I mean, I've gotten questions by students, you know, and others who would say, well, where would you suggest, Dr. Waldron, that they put these pipelines in our community, in white communities? And that's not what I'm suggesting. And it's not up to me to make that decision. That's, you know, you're asking a professor, right? You've got to ask uh, the people, the industry and the government who who makes that decision. But my, my suggestion would be that when you do an environmental assessment, which is a process that you go through to decide where an industry gets placed, that that environmental assessment to me isn't taking into account the social ills that I just described, how putting that pipeline would further compromise the vulnerability due to the things that I just mentioned, like missing and murdered women and, and, and inequality, et cetera. It's not taking those things into account. It's just putting an industry in those communities. But if you were to factor in um, all the things that I mentioned and how putting industry there would create even more vulnerability would worsen the social, economic, mm. political issues that these communities have, then perhaps you would make a different decision. So I'm not saying certainly that, you know, uh, no, you should put it in a white community. I'm just saying that the way in which mm. you put environmental assessment needs to be just and fair, mm-hmm. and it needs to take into account uh, which communities are most vulnerable. And we know the most vulnerable communities are Indigenous communities in Canada, so you make matters worse. It's hard to address their the social ills that they're asking the government to to address, particularly through the Truth and Reconciliation Report, which is what was a hundred page report or more than that, that discussed how we're going to address issues in indigenous communities when you're further compromising the issues that they're asking you to address in the first place. So an environmental assessment to me as a sociologist, I look at it through that sociological lens, needs to look at the sociological ramifications of putting that pipeline there. And if you find that it's going to worsen uh, the social fabric of that community, then you shouldn't put it there. Then you got to go back to the drawing board. Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Hey, listeners. If you like this show, you should check out Unlocking Bryson's Brain from CBC Podcasts. 13-year-old Bryson is a happy, loving boy, but a mysterious disease means he can't walk, talk, or feed himself. After years without a diagnosis, Genetic scientists believe they know what's causing Bryson's illness and think it could be reversed. Join Bryson's family on their search for a medical miracle in unlocking Bryson's brain. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. All of us are figuring out how to keep our bodies and minds healthy in these shifting circumstances. That might be especially hard for some of us. If you think someone you know might be having a hard time, do your part to be there for them. And hey, while you're at it, be there for yourself, too. Jack.org's Be There resource acknowledges the fact that we don't always know what to do or say for those around us showing signs of struggle. 
It's easy to stumble on our words, make things about yourself, and forget to listen. We are all guilty of it. And it can feel especially daunting during times like this, when many of our relationships have become virtual. Don't be too hard on yourself. Take a deep breath and follow the five golden rules. Say what you see, show you care, hear them out, know your role, and connect to help. And remember, these are just tips. Supporting someone means constantly educating yourself. There is so much more to learn, and we're here for you. Head to bethere.org for more. Speaking of the the social fabric of a lot of these communities, like like I'm sitting here in my home in on the peninsula in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, as a white male who for the for my entire life I've I, like financially I've been pretty secure, you know I've never really had to worry too much about about anything there, um, aside from a chronic illness. Like my health has been has been good. Um, I, I recognize like that I, I'm a pretty privileged individual. Um, and to hear you talk about these like disenfranchised communities that exist all across our nation and, and most certainly across North America, um, I, I can't help but think about how, and, and especially right now, especially in this weird time that we're in, where like all of us are locked in our homes and everything has changed. And like, we feel like we feel, um, we feel like we're in in unfamiliar territory and and this is very uncomfortable i can only imagine that being from one of these communities or currently living in one of these communities and and that being all you know and and knowing that you are um less uh, um being being like looked at and and treated less than, um, than, than other communities that, that you may be surrounded with would come with its own like host of mental health, like ramifications. Um, is, can you speak to that side of things? Like the, the mental health implications of, of, of living in a community that is, that is viewed as, as, as less than because of its, um, because of the people that inhabit it? Yes, huge ramifications. In fact, uh, the mental health outcomes of uh, systemic inequalities are actually what my focus has been in, uh, on uh, for the past few years. Um, we know, of course, that in Canada, Indigenous communities have high rates of mental illness and suffer the highest rates of suicide, Right. Uh, suicidal mm. ideation, but also committing suicide. Uh, the black community also suffers from uh, mental health issues, uh, a stigma in both communities. Um, I recently did some work. I'm doing uh, several studies right now looking specifically at mental illness uh, in the black community. And it's a great stigma, very hard for them to talk about. But issues, mm. it's a substance dependence, schizophrenia depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, intergenerational trauma um, affect Indigenous and Black communities significantly. Um, I like to talk about the mental health implications of inequality through an intergenerational historical trauma lens 
uh, indigenous communities talk about historical trauma and they pinpoint residential schools, for example, as one uh, factor that has huge implications for present day mental health problems. When you say, when you say historical trauma, do you mean, for example, somebody who, um, and, and just using the residential school system as an example, somebody, let's say somebody who lives in an indigenous community, um, who's, uh, 15, 20 years old and <coughs> maybe doesn't have, um, a relative that they've ever spoken to that was, that was, um, that was involved in that, but because it, because it took, because it affected the community, they feel that that trauma is a part of their history. And that's, is that what you mean by historical trauma? Yeah, there's okay. two components to that. You know, earlier we talked about, um, epigenetics. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's work being done that indicates that you may not have gone through residential schooling, your grandparents may have, but you are currently suffering the consequences of that. Historical trauma, what I like about it as well, is that it tends not to medicalize health and mental health issues, right? It's about the structural issues that I talked about before. We tend to medicalize health issues and mental health issues, don't we? There's got to be a biological or genetic component to it. Mm. And historical trauma and intergenerational trauma, you can use these terms, uh, um, interchangeably interchangeably is about those structures of colonialism in the past and present day forms of colonialism and inequalities within all of our structures that actually create historical trauma over time and over generations uh, to the point where you will see young people and other people suffering from mental health problems because of that and because of what their parents went through and simply because of um, knowing that they're living in a Nova Scotia where present-day colonialism is a reality. You know, we call that settler colonialism, right? Mm. Distinguish it from colonialism of the past, right? Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. With historical trauma... In terms of like treating that at an individual level, is it more, I I don't want to say like more or less challenging, but I imagine that, I'm I'm imagining that if somebody grew up with um, PTSD or complex PTSD based on or or caused from an experience that they had in their lifetime, it would probably be, um, and again, I don't want to use the word easier, but more I guess easier to understand or identify with that experience. But if you were trying to overcome historical trauma, there's not this like tangible experience that you had in your lifetime that you can really like relate to or or build a story around to help yourself understand it and, and overcome it. And I think, you know, as you're saying with historical trauma, it seems like it's it's more of 
um, a systematic or systemic change that needs to happen rather than um, healing on an individual level is like, how do you treat historical trauma? That's a fantastic question. And yes, we could wait forever for the structural issues to be dealt with, right? And we've got a person who's dealing with it. So how do we help that person? And you know what I would say? I would say that we need our frontline workers, our mental health professionals, which isn't happening. Uh, I talk about this a lot, that they need to be structurally competent. We heard, we've heard that term culturally competent, and I'm saying, nah, not enough. Mm. Culturally competent is, is, is just a small piece of the puzzle. We need, to, we need counselors and therapists, psychologists and psychiatrists to be structurally competent, meaning that that person who's dealing with all of those issues needs to be looking at somebody who understands the structural, who understands the sociological. So yes, it can be treated at an individual level in the same way that somebody who is not dealing with structural forms of trauma uh, is getting help, but that person has to be equipped we have to train, which is what I do in the School of Nursing. That's why, you know, I said I have my little niche in the School of Nursing. I'm trying to train my nursing students and others to be structurally competent, to be able to recognize that racism, yes, is a health issue, that colonialism is a health issue, that we need to go beyond the health system. We need to look at the educational system, employment, labor, housing, income. And once you're able as a health profession student or a medical doctor in training to grapple with those systemic issues and inequalities within the other social structures beyond health, then you become equipped structurally to provide the kind of counseling that somebody who I just described uh, requires. So I do think we're able to do it individually, but what's not happening right now in universities across Canada and in medical schools is this focus structural determinants of health. All the things I've been talking to you about today, they're not focusing on that. There's still an emphasis on medicalizing trauma and on the body, right? In medicine, what we call the medical model, a focus on the body, the breakdown of the body, the malfunctioning of the body, the fact that the solutions to illness lie uh, within, within the body, but also through drugs and medication and not through fixing the systems and structures that actually create some of the problems that uh, we are experiencing. So it can be done. uh, The way it should be done is that we are equipping our medical health professionals to grapple with structural issues um, and racism and colonialism. It sounds like you almost just, it sounds like training them to be more proactive than reactive. Well, (sighs) Yes, I mean, sadly, let's just talk about nutrition. Doctors are not even being trained. Mm-hmm. How often, maybe you have a great doctor, I don't know, but when you go to your doctor, are they giving you medication or are they saying to you, here are some of the um, the the foods that you can eat and the things that you can do in terms of your lifestyle that can actually improve your health? Are they taking the time to do that? I don't even think that they're equipped. No. I don't even think yeah. that they're equipped to do yeah. that. You know, doctors aren't, you know, I mean, I had an experience, um, I had an experience recently, um, where I, I, I had an accident last May and, um, I hadn't had a family doctor up to that point and I was able to get a family doctor, um, then, and he's, he's wonderful. Um, but I recently, uh, I, I was traveling 
while I was traveling while this craziness was going on and I wasn't feeling super well leading up to traveling. And, um, and I'd had this kind of lingering thing. So I went to see the doctor and I couldn't see my own. So they, they, they had me go see somebody else at the clinic and I went in, I described what was going on and how I felt and everything. And ultimately he, he said, yeah, I think you're fine. But then wrote me a prescription for something anyway, wrote me a prescription for something that in intuitively I went, I don't need that. I know I don't need that, but it was, it was, it very much, it very much so reeked of here. I know this is really what you want psychologically is for me to write you a prescription so that you'll feel better, that you'll feel like you got something when you came here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I kind of walked out kind of just being like, wow, that was a, such a crazy experience. I feel like he actually had no basis on writing that prescription whatsoever, other than to make me feel like I was, I was taken care of in some way. And, uh, anyway, it's just a very, very surreal experience. But like you said, I mean, a doctor just really isn't, isn't super equipped for, isn't really equipped at all for those things. I mean, we were talking to somebody recently on the podcast who was writing, I can't remember if it was, she was doing her master's or a PhD on, um, it, it had to do with, um, intersectionality in healthcare and how it relates to, um, policy, um, and how policy gets made. And, um, and I'm, and I'm sure you face this all the time in, in your work. I mean, it's because there are so many intersecting points. It just, it, it does have the tendency to start becoming very, like very overwhelming when, 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 realizing just how many, just how many different points can, can influence why somebody feels a certain way and then how they get when, and then how then they get treated when they go see the doctor or when they go into the emergency room or everything. Like it, it really is. I mean, I was sitting there listening going, holy shit, like I can't eat. It's so hard for me to even put this together in my head. There's just so much, there's so much to consider how can how can we equip nurses and doctors and people everyone in that healthcare system to be to even be at like a, at at a at a reasonably competent level with that stuff i mean even before answering how can we I, like i i just want to know what 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 your thoughts are on why do you think it's so hard for us as a society and, and especially in the world of like in, in the world of medicine, like we're talking about right now, why is it so hard for us to wrap our head around the idea or even the concept of systemic racism? Like what, like why is that? It, why, because like I'm sitting here, and I'm going, that's crazy. Like we need to do something about this. But, and I feel like, like everyone should be feeling that way yet. Nothing's, it, it doesn't seem to be the thing that is like, is it because we're too science focused? Like we're too focused on, on the, the, the medicine, the, the science, like, is that why it's an issue? And I, you know, I want to go beyond just race, you know, it's sexual orientation and gender identity and income and poverty. All those things are important. So it's not just race. You know, I, I also speak with students who are doing work on LGBTQ issues and the need to be struggling mm-hmm. with confidence. It's all those issues. It's two, two reasons, I believe, because we are ensconced in the medical model and we only give validity to anything that's science-based um, and that focuses on illness um, as an outcome of the malfunctioning or breaking down of the body. And then the solutions to that illness uh, through drugs and other means. 
It's also because those are who are holding positions as doctors, who are in the health professions, who you see uh, at hospitals and other healthcare settings are primarily white. White people, like I appreciate what you said, but it's difficult for them to understand racism because they don't experience it in the same way that racialized people do. So I do recognize that it's very difficult for white people to empathize with racism and truly feel it. You probably could say to me that you understand it. You have a friend who has spoken to you about their experiences and you... But I've never been there. I, yeah, exactly. It's, I've yeah. never experienced it. Yeah. Body. So it's hard to mm-hmm. validate racism as a health issue. Mm-hmm. It, just seems, it, it just seems out there, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we talked about the psychosocial stressors of racism. That just seems out there for people who don't uh, typically experience it. Um, so I think it's those two things. The medical model holds power and will continue to hold power for some time. Although the work that I'm doing, I would say, is gaining ground, right? Else they wouldn't allow me to teach what I teach in the School of Nursing at Dalhousie, a prestigious university. They would not allow me to teach it. Um, mm. I think it's gaining ground. The Public Health Association of Canada, or is it the Canadian Health Association last year or the year before, finally validated racism as a determinant of health. And they were called on for years to do that, and they finally did. Institution like that, that has recently recognized racism as a determinant of health, which has been done in the United States for years, that's a big step forward. So there's increasing kind of um, legitimization of racism as a structural determinant of health. But I think we've got a medical model that is so powerful and that is the grounded in science and the ways in which we understand science um, doesn't really accommodate those social, external, environmental issues impacting the body. Mm. This kind of in terms of like, in terms of um, the next step after recognizing recognizing it as a social determinant of health, like once they recognize it, how do they actually implement real change? Like, what are the things that that are being done or could be done to actually change the way that the healthcare system works? Yes, and some great questions because these questions are uh, the final paper for my students last week was on this particular issue. How do you address the structural determinants of health in health policy and in healthcare workforce and in health promotion? Well, what you need to do is you need to engage, the health system needs to engage in more crosstalk right? So the the health system and the education system and the labor system and the immigration system, they all work in silos. They don't talk to one another. There's no problem. And if we're going to address uh, the health outcomes and the mental health outcomes of structural inequities, it means that everybody has to collaborate in order to do that. So you've got to be speaking with the folks in labor and you've got to be speaking with the folks in employment And you've got to be speaking with the folks in the seniors uh, division of the government. And you've got to be speaking with the folks in the environment, et cetera. It means that people have to engage in crosstalk and start to develop partnerships where they come together in order to address in their own sectors how to address these inequities. But then how does that feed into health policy and the healthcare workforce. Now, some of us are taking care of that issue in terms of we're professors, so we're teaching our students about these issues. Uh, but healthcare professionals and folks working in those other sectors also need to partner. 
And I think there's a fear of doing that because people think, oh, it's going to be more work. It's going to be a burden on me. You're asking me to do even more work. But I think there are ways to do that in a smart way uh, where people are uh, building on what other people have done. So I think that's um, one way to do it. I think of a, I think of the North End Clinic on Goddard Street in Halifax, and they use a really great model, which is actually it exemplifies what I'm describing. We have this term called um, interprofessional education uh, at Dalhousie mm. or in the health professions. And if you look at the model that's used at the North End Clinic on Goddard Street, they've got dietitians, they've got nutritionists, they've got medical doctors, uh, they've got social workers, all working as a team to address the multiple social, political, economic issues that clients face. That's a model that I would love to see taken up by more uh, in, in healthcare settings. I think it's a community-based clinic, uh, the North End Clinic. Uh, it might be difficult or challenging to, to do that within a hospital setting, but you need a team of people, um, who a team that's comprised of health professionals from different sectors who are addressing the multiple social, economic, and health issues faced by your client through an interdisciplinary or multi-sectoral team. And that's not really happening. So that to me is the first step. Is there is there anything being done to um is there anything being done like like even earlier to to spread awareness? Like I'm sitting here listening to you and and I'm thinking back to when I was in high school and the things that I was taught uh, in high school and in junior high and, and systematic racism was not one of those things. I, or let me rephrase that. If it was, I wasn't paying attention. So <laughs> like, is that something that is being taught in, in high schools and, and junior highs? Um, uh, because I, I, I was joke, you know, half joking there that I, I probably wasn't listening. I, I probably wasn't if it was being taught, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't being taught in my high school and I'm from lower Sackville. I went to Sackville high, right? So I'm from here. Um, is there, is like, is the, is the landscape changing there in terms of earlier education and, 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 um, kind of pushing forward a bit more awareness uh, surrounding things like systemic racism or environmental racism or, you know, um, I mean, I, I know, I know speaking to a, a high school teacher who's, who's still a really good friend of mine. Um, and we meet up every once in a while. Like she's, she's talked to me about how, how vastly different the, the, the um, discourse uh, surrounding LGBTQ issues has changed since I was in her class. But is are we seeing a, a, a shift in the way that we speak about, you know, the injustices done to the indigenous population of Canada or or, you know, systematic systematic racism or, or the things that were covered in, in your book and in the, the documentary? Um, there's something in the water. Like, is there more being done to talk about that? It's changing very slowly. I mean, in my classroom, I have with in nursing, you've got. Uh, students who have just come out of high school. So we have a young, or we used to anyhow, um, a young, uh, the, the age grouping is very young. They've just come out of high school. And they typically would say to me when I started teaching my social determinants of health course that I used to teach a few years ago, they would say, I've never had a black professor in my life. And I've never learned about any of these issues. And there's a bit of a frustration mm. that I'm asking them to grapple with these issues when they haven't learned about it. So they're 
they said, I've learned some things about diversity, but I haven't, you know, we use that term, but I haven't learned about racism. And now I'm asking them to grapple with it. And I can sense that they were frustrated. I was asking too much. Um, so I would say that just based on what my students have told me, it's not being done. But I do know some high school uh, uh, teachers, some of whom are white, who have made it a point to discuss Indigenous and Mi'kmaq history and African Nova Scotian history, some I'm friends with who are doing that work. Uh, so I think it's happening very slowly. In terms of environmental racism, I'm actually collaborating with an NGO right now called uh, Let's Sprout to actually embed environmental justice and environmental racism education into the high school and middle school teach uh, curriculum. I was approached by a Sackville Heights uh, teacher two years ago around my environmental racism project. She said, this is great, but I'm not seeing anything for young people. And I said, well, I've been trying to reach out to the high school system for a while to kind of try to embed environmental racism into the high school curriculum. And it's been like a maze. I found it very difficult to find connections there. She said, I'll, I'll help you. I'm happy to help you. So that was a 2017. And I'm now involved in this project where we're going to do several things. We want to create online resources and tools to teach about environmental racism to high school and middle school teachers. This, these would be tools that profess teachers can use in the classroom to teach uh, this information. And we're also more broadly trying to change the curriculum, the high school and middle school curriculum, uh, to embed issues around racism and Mi'kmaq history and African Nova Scotian history and environmental racism into the curriculum. Um, and we did an environmental scan last year. And in doing that environmental scan, we found that there's a big gap um, in mm. that inf with that information in the school curriculum. Mm -hmm. I'm happy that you brought up that question because this is a, a goal of my mind that I know will be very challenging. Um, it's very challenging because you've got mostly white professors who don't feel comfortable teaching this stuff. So that's the other part of this. Yeah, right. Which I understand. They're, they're afraid to trip up, right? You're afraid if you're yeah. part yeah. of a particular group, um, you don't want to say the wrong thing. I was fucking afraid of tripping up coming into this conversation today. I was like, man, we're going to be talking about racism. I, this white guy coming, like, what do <laughs> I'm not a part of the yeah. LGBTQ community, but I yeah. Yeah. talk about LGBTQ issues in my class. Yeah. When I first started talking about LGBTQ issues, I was like, oh, God, I know I have to do this ethically. I can't just talk mm. about race. I've got to talk about all the inequalities, but I'm not LGBTQ. I don't completely empathize, not empathize, but understand their struggle. Yes. But I've got yeah. to teach it, and I might make a mistake. <clears throat> and I have made a mistake, and the student called me out. <laughs> in, in the <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but that's, and, yeah. and that's important. Like, that's one of the, the greatest lessons that doing this podcast has taught me is that when you're trying to empathize, as long as you're coming from a place of compassion, there's no there's no telling that you won't make mistakes. But when you do slip up, the people on the other side will be able to forgive you. Yes. And mm -hmm. it's just an opportunity for you to learn and move forward. But and then it, you won't do it again. <laughs> but at the but at the same time at the same time, is there is is that does that become a problem sometimes when you are talking about issues like this and you do slip and you might slip up um um rather innocently or, or unintentionally, and you get the backlash that can be really, really intense. And then which re which then ends up reinforcing people's hesitancy to, mm -hmm. to do, to, to face those and talk about those issues. I mean, 
Well, in this in this Twitter world, I guess <laughs> we're going to have to face that backlash. People are, people yeah. are unrelenting and unforgiving. Um, and I don't know how to deal with that because that's just personalities, right? But yeah, I think you need to trudge through. I think you need to like really just like, you know, you need to choose your battles and and just understand, like you said, Brian, like if you are coming, if you are truly coming at something with with a a very deep and like true sense of compassion, then uh, that's that is that is the most important thing. And that is the thing that's going to take us uh, further and further into, you know, um, it's going to, it's that, that's, what's going to allow us to evolve to, that's, what's going to allow change. That's what's going to allow us to be better. My yoga teacher once said to me, um, I I was telling him it's this long story, but I was telling him about this scenario where I was feeling really bad because this guy that I, I had interacted with was, um, didn't, didn't accept my apology for some, something. And I went to my yoga teacher and I told him about the story and he said, well, do you, did you apologize? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, did you mean it? And I was like, yeah, of course. And he's like, well, then you did the best that you can. It's not, you you cannot control whether or not he accepts that. So therefore come from that place of compassion and you can't control the best. (laughs) Hope for the best. Somebody who's not a big person. If you don't accept apology, then you're not a big person. I mean, um, I feel it my duty, particularly because I'm a teacher, it is my duty to teach this information in a way that it may not be the duty of other people, right? But it's my duty because I've got young people in my classroom and I owe it to them to actually recognize their identities. I've got all kinds of identities in my classroom, people of different racial identities, people of different gender identities and sexual orientation. And they want to see themselves in in the work that I do. They want to see themselves in the curriculum. And I feel, and I, I've spoken with some professors who would say, I'm not talking about LGBTQ issues. They don't agree with it. They don't agree with being gay. They've got some religious issue against it. And I'm not talking about it in grade. And I just think that's, um, it's unethical to me. So um, whether or not you're comfortable, you believe in it, you've got a classroom full of people, some of whom you're not mm-hmm. aware of, who are gay and transitioning, who uh, are of different sexual orientations. And I think it's my duty as a professor to enable them to see themselves in mm-hmm. the classroom. Yeah. And to be able to engage in, in converse, in conversations. And, yeah. and I, I, what there was that, um, that clip, uh, uh, that was going around maybe three or four months ago, Obama was at a, was at a, he was giving a discussion and he was having kind of like a fireside chat and he was talking about, you know, how easy it is, like you said, in this Twitter world in these days to just, I think his words were something on the lines of like, it's easy to throw shade at somebody and tell somebody that you suck and you said the wrong thing and sit down rather than to just engage in like a thoughtful discussion um, with somebody about things. And you might not, you you ultimately might not agree at the end of the day. And that's not necessarily like you said, Brian, you you, you can apologize and whether that person accepts or not, it's up to them. Um, But at least engage and have like a civil, civil discourse about whatever it is, whatever the the issue is. Um, I, I speaking of speaking of spreading, um, you know, spreading awareness and 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 teaching the future of tomorrow uh, about all of these these big and heavy and, and important issues. Um, uh, Doctor Waldron, you wrote a book uh, titled "There's Something in the Water." 
there's something in the water with the subtitle uh, environmental racism and indigenous and black in indigenous and black communities and um, that book gained the attention of um, uh, famous Haligonian. Um, uh, everybody loves Ellen Page. Um, and uh, the book ended up, um, you and you were a producer, correct, on, on the, the film, which ended up turning into a, a feature-length documentary, uh, which you can watch now on Netflix, the same title, There Is Something, There's Something in the Water. It was amazing, which was di- by the way. Which I, was, yeah, I loved di- it. <laughs> directed, directed by Ellen Page, um, uh, and, uh, and, and hosted by Ellen Page. It, it is, it is a pretty sobering documentary. It's a pretty eye-opening, um, it's a pretty eye-opening watch. I, there, I was draw, I was brought to tears when I believe her name was Louise, um, uh, out in Shelburne maybe, or yeah. Um, her, like her, her whole segment just like really, it, it, it's very early in the movie and it's, it's, it's a very striking, um, and again, sobering moment to hear her drive around her community and point out to all these houses of all the people who have died of cancer. Um, and, and another moment that really stuck out was they showed a map of Nova Scotia and they, they had yellow dots representing all of the different um, indigenous and, and black communities across Nova Scotia. And then red dots that, that signified um, basically like infrastructure that, that is um, that, that surrounds like, that creates a lot of pollution and, and, uh, you know, like garbage dumps and, and mills and, uh, things like this and, and how these red dots were so closely connected to these yellow dots all across our province. And, um, I, I, you know, we talked a lot about this throughout this, this conversation, but if, if I, I, I highly, highly recommend taking the time to sit down and watch it because it really is, um, it really is fascinating and eye-opening and and touching. Um, I want to know, uh, just a, a, like a personal question to you, like how how was the documentary received? Um, how how what how, what was the feedback that you've gotten from it, and has anything stemmed from that? I mean, really wonderful. I have to say, overwhelmingly so. The first stop was at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, and we received a standing ovation there. Um, and after I left the screening, you're talking about Louise, and it's interesting, after I left that screening, I was walking down the street uh, from the Toronto International Film Festival site where we screened it, and I was approached by two different groups of people um, saying to me that they would like to pay for the well. Like, how atrocious. Oh, wow. This is in the span of 20, uh, 15 minutes. I left the screening, walking down the street to my hotel, and I was approached by a group of people saying uh, this was this was a group of African Canadian people who were part of some group, an African Heritage Society or something, and they said we just saw your film and we can't believe that there are communities without clean water. We would like to donate to the well. At that time, I had known that Ellen had already was already going to do that, but she didn't want me to say anything. So I said to this group, I said. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you, but it's been taken care of. So then we said our goodbyes, and I walked three more minutes, and then I was approached by another woman, by her, <laughs> and she said, I just saw your film. I would like to donate some money to the well. I can't believe that there are communities without clean water. I said, thank you very, very much. Very kind of you, but it's been taken care of. Then I returned home to Halifax, and I was up late at night, as I always am, at 1 a.m., 
And at 1 a.m., I received an email from a man from Mississauga, Ontario, saying, I just saw your film at the Toronto International Film Festival. I can't believe that there are communities. (laughs) 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 Can you please put me in touch with Louise DeLille? I'd like to donate some. (laughs) Thank you very much for the taken care of. So that tells you the immediate impact that film can have that maybe a book can't. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of the, we got a lot of media attention, national and international media attention. And, you know, I was kind of surprised that the American media really hadn't heard the term. And because, you know, environmental racism, it, there are a lot of cases of that in the United States. We have Flint, Michigan. Yeah, big headline case. Is it, and you've got Standing Rock and, you know, <clears throat> The, the American media, I found, was, was kind of strange that they, some of them were not familiar with the term. And then we did our screening at the Atlantic Film Festival, got a, got a standing ovation. We had to use three cinemas for, for our screening. It was supposed to be, wow. but it was sold out. Um, inter- and then we had the Black Film Festival here in Halifax uh, late February, and we had to have two screenings. It was supposed to be one screening. And we had two. So in terms of just people wanting to see the film, I've just been overwhelmed with with um, just the positivity that they're showing uh, to the film and the feedback I'm getting on Twitter and by email from people that I've never met. Um, yeah, it's been it's really been wonderful in terms of the next step. I I don't know. I mean, I think Netflix was not something that we anticipated. Um, as I say to many people, we were planning to put a 15-minute clip on Twitter. That was the initial plan for this. Mm-hmm. And it turned into a 70-minute film. And then last minute, we submitted it to TIFF. Last minute, I think it was August of last year, and I think the deadline had passed. So everything that's happening right now is continues to be a shock to me, Um particularly because we had a very raw and very rough film um, and had no plans to really submit it anywhere beyond Twitter. <laughs> it just goes to show how important the message yeah, is, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's a, it's a perfect example. For me, the, the kudos, you know, from TIFF and from the Atlantic Film Festival, for me, the reason I thought TIFF was important is because it garners an international audience. Everybody's going to see it. And if we really want the message to get out there, if we want to raise awareness about environmental racism and have some type of impact, then I thought we needed to uh, expose it to a broad audience. And TIFF is the most prestigious film festival in the world, but an international audience. And then I say to myself, okay, so why 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 did the mill close last year? I'm not saying it's all about the film, but I do believe it has something to do with it. All of a sudden, the mill closed. Mm. Christmas of last year, and even our premier mentions the word environmental racism. He's been doing that quite a bit for the past year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. up, obviously. He's using the term. Yeah. And, uh, he recognizes at the end of last year that no, too many broken promises we've given to Pictou Landing First Nation. This needs to end right now. And I do believe that it's a combination of many things. I think it's the civil disobedience and the and the resistance by the indigenous people and their and their you know supporters, I think it's bills that have maybe not been passed but that have created mm. awareness. But I also think it's the film because I, yeah. I think film is powerful. I think film is the most powerful medium that we have. I yeah. think of Shelburne and the fact that um, they're 
town council approved the purchase and placement of the new well, per, you know, that's that Ellen Page is going to fund. Um, wow. They were going back and forth on that issue last year. And then February of this year, they said, okay, we approve it. I think the fact that the appeal by the folks in Indian Brook, the Sabanagadi, um, the appeal of the environmental assessment that was approved by our former environment minister, I think that has to do with the film as well. And it has yeah. to do with Indigenous organizing and mobilizing. I think it's a lot of factors, but I really believe that the film has had an impact on these kind of victories that we've seen over the past few months. Well, it's a wonderful um, example of activism. And uh, to hear that it... it to hear that there are changes happening um, in in light of the release of the documentary, or at least after the documentary, um, and knowing that it, it likely played at least a small role is is really lovely to hear. Again, if you haven't watched it, um, highly recommend it. It's on Netflix right now. There's something in the water. Um, uh, Dr. Waldron, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day today to sit down with us and to uh, to be open to having this conversation and, and educating the three of us for sure, but uh, most certainly educating uh, a, a bunch of our listeners. And it really means the world to us. So thank you so much. And I'd like to thank you guys for having this conversation because we don't often have this conversation on racism um, in Halifax. So I really am very grateful. Thank you so well, much. Thank you. Um, and thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll leave it at that this week. And uh, we hope you're all hunkered down, uh, staying safe, and uh, following uh, all the all of those things that the public health authority is telling you to do. So uh, don't touch your eyeballs and social distance. And uh, it, again, it's all temporary. Stay so we'll get through this. Home. Stay the blazes Stay home. Stay the blazes, blazes home sakes, for blazes, I, I blazing blazons. Uh, all right, that is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. And that was Dr. Waldron. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.